Welcome to another episode of the Good Listening To Show, your life and times with me, Chris Grimes. The storytelling show that features The Clearing, where all good questions come to get asked and all good stories come to be told. And where all my guests have two things in common. They're all creative individuals and all with an interesting story to tell. There are some lovely storytelling metaphors. A clearing, a tree, a juicy storytelling exercise called 54321, some alchemy, some gold, a cheeky bit of Shakespeare and a cake. So it's all to play for. So yes, welcome to the Good Listening To Show, your life and times with me, Chris Grimes. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we shall begin. Yes, indeed. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to LinkedIn Live, if you're watching here too. This is a live recording of the Good Listening To Show, Stories of Distinction and Genius. I'm delighted to welcome Denise Barden to the show. And Denise is a climate change sustainability champion. She's Professor of Sustainable Practice at Southampton University. We're going to find out all about the story behind the story of Denise, but Denise, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for inviting me on. You're extremely welcome. I'm just going to blow a bit of happy smoke at you. And also just a tiny bit of context. This is the show in which I invite movers, makers, shakers, mavericks, influencers, and also personal heroes into a clearing or serious happy place of my guests choosing to all share with us their stories of distinction and genius. And I'm delighted to say that Denise was passed the golden baton by Paul Z. Jackson, improvisation guru, and he's worked very closely in a solutions focus context with Denise. And uh, he th said that she's extremely worth giving a damn good listening to. So this is why you're here. So um, if I could ask you a deliberately clunky sort of networky question that we've all got to face, Denise, if somebody says, oh, hello, you look interesting. What do you do? What's your favorite way of avoiding or answering that question, Denise? <laughs> okay, uh, well, I guess at the moment, I would say I'm a professor of sustainability and um, with a side hustle in climate fiction. And those are your green stories, which are incredible. I really, well, I know you're going to talk about those as well. And also a really bit, important bit of happy smoke. You're on the Forbes list where at last count, the official Forbes list of 68 climate, not climate changes, because that makes it sound like it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's, it's called a climate leader of change. Yes, yeah, um, I was yeah, d delighted to find I was on that. So I think that was some work I did with BAFTA on hashtag climate characters that probably got, got me noticed by the people who, who put that forward and also the work with the Green Stories Project. Yes, yeah, so just tell us a bit about the Green Stories Project as well. Um, well, I set that up in 2018 because um, when you're sort of in the sustainability world, you tend to find you're, you're very busy talking to the same people the whole time. And, you know, I feel like I've got a good grasp, you know, I should do, <laughs> of the solutions. But trying to get them out there to the right people is, uh, is a big challenge. So I set up the Green Stories Project as a way to try and encourage writers to embed sort of climate solutions in their stories. Um, and I was also, this is the overlap with Paul, actually, I was also worried that we were taking a very problem-focused approach. Yes. And if you make people scared, and they're going to switch off, go into denial, fear. And I know my background's a psychologist. Yes. Fear isn't necessarily going to lead us to the kind of behaviours we want. You know, we're probably more likely to buy up all the toilet rolls than stop, you know, eating beef or flying. So, um I thought, well, let's use fiction as a way to engage a mainstream audience. And, and yes, and of course, when we're scared, there's just complete stasis and overwhelm. And yeah. um, some of the, the wonderful copy that you have on your own website, um, it, it, you, you do point out that the more we tend to know and find out, the scarier it becomes. Like the sun, you can't look at it too closely. But if you put your face to one side, you can make your own way. Uh, there is a way of putting it right, which is what your green fiction is all about. Yeah, we've got all the solutions right here. I mean, there's not much we need to do other than um, probably do less. <laughs> yes, and tread lightly and carefully, or lightly and mindfully upon the earth is so doable, is one of the really yes. impactful things that you say. You're also a multi-author as well. You're working on a new book at the moment, aren't you? I am, I am. So um, I've just finished one book, The Philosopher and the Assassin, 
which is I like to do things differently. Uh, it's a fusion of whodunit, moral philosophy textbook and campus novel. <laughs> so <Go> you. Um, <laughs> years ago, our head of school encouraged us to try and entertain students, edutainment, which is a term that many of my colleagues like. Uh, I do entertainment, so I get that. It's lovely when we... <laughs> But I thought, well, okay, let's give that a go. So um, I'm now like, I could publish it through Habitat Press, but I'm in the market for a, a larger publisher for, for yes. that one. Well, I, I hope this, this will help sort of dangle you out there as a very attractive prospect for the publishers <laughs> that are watching. And in fact, you mentioned Habitat. You, you published mm. a Habitat themed rom-com in uh, called yes. Habitat Man. <laughs> Which, I'd love to find out more about that. It's not a man who just goes and buys lots of furniture, obviously. <laughs> well, people sometimes do get that wrong, yes. <laughs> um, now, that, that was my first novel, and yes. it was my lockdown project. And I'm almost ashamed to say I had a lovely lockdown. <laughs> Peace, quiet, the birds were tweeting. Yes. And... Um, so, and, and that was a lovely chance to, to write the story. And um, it was inspired partly by this green garden consultant and he'd given up his job, uh, taken early retirement to try and make gardens wildlife friendly. And, you know, he told me I should put in a pond plant, you know, pollinator friendly plants and put up a yeah. water butt in a bat box and, and told me to let my grass grow. And he was, I know, I was so inspired by him because he said I can only do a few gardens. I wish I could do the world. Oh, how lovely. A book can maybe reach a lot more people. And he's had so much more since I published Habitat Man. <laughs> and I love he's that expression, your alliteration. Yeah. Sorry, your alliteration of I had a lovely lockdown. <laughs> and to your point about we can all do less, that's why it was lovely, because we were forced to do less. But as you quite rightly said, it, it was extraordinary. People heard the birds sing probably for the first. I mean, they're always singing, but we can't yeah. hear, the, hear the beautiful things. I know. And he taught me to see nature, to see my garden through the eyes of nature, through the eyes of bees and birds and hedgehogs. And that was a real gift he gave me. And I, I tried to gift that to readers of the book but I also threw in a, a, a body for him to dig up and a romance and <laughs> yes. some, some some fun drama there too. So it sounds like a, a bit of wind in the willows with, with some extra punchy stuff about sustainability in there. Yes yeah I'm quite I, it nearly got through to the radio for it got through to the final sort of round for choosing a comedy series for the 6.30 slot. Oh fantastic. Uh, just got pipped at the post um, but I was very very thrilled that it, it got that far. I see it as a TV series so any TV producers out there so many people have got in contact saying this should be a TV series have you thought of this person that person <laughs> as the lead role so um, that's that's my next dream. And of course, with the modern new hybrid world and the fact we can all broadcast, there's actually not, we, we often have, well, historically, we've had to wait for gatekeepers to give us permission yes. to tell us that we've got a good idea. But even, you know, today is a testament to the fact that if you've got an idea, you can start broadcasting about it. Well, that's right. And you, you're completely right. The gatekeepers have gone now. So, yes. um, and I think mostly that's a good thing. Yes. You know, pros and cons, but mostly it's a good thing. I agree. <laughs> So it's my great privilege and delight to be able to curate you through the journey of the Good Listening To show, Denise. There's going to be a clearing, a tree, a juicy storytelling exercise called 54321. There'll be some alchemy, some gold, a couple of random squirrels, a cheeky bit of Shakespeare, and a cake, and a golden baton as a cheeky chappy chaser. So it's all to play for. So let's get you on the open road of that, if I may. So first of all, uh, with your particular focus on sustainability, I'm fascinated to know what your clearing or serious happy place is going to be. So where does Denise go to get clutter-free, inspirational and able to think? Uh, well, this is very problematic, Chris, because actually my favourite place to get clutter-free and feel in the zone is bobbing around on a lovely warm sea having swum so far out that all I can see is the horizon I can pretend I'm the only person on the earth but unfortunately that requires quite you know a high carbon consuming flight um <laughs> so I'm going to settle for my bath it's not ideal <laughs> ah, I love the fact that it's water-based and I love the scale there we went macro micro there we've gone from yeah. the open ocean in the middle of nowhere <laughs> floating and you're not yeah. on a lilo by the sound of it this is just you having done the work of swimming out 
Yes. Uh, so uh, whoever I'm with has to sit on the shore panicking in case I drown, but I'm always superbly <laughs> confident that I can bob around uh, forever. I'm, I'm very buoyant. It's, it's one of my assets, very buoyant. What a lovely thing to say about myself. <laughs> I had a lovely lockdown and I'm very buoyant. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we're in a, it sounds like an Epsom bath of salt if you're, if you're trying to float. So the Dead Sea would be quite appealing to you, I would imagine, even though it's got the yes, wrong title. Yes, I did try an immersion tank once. That was weird. You're literally on top of the water. You don't sink down at all. Uh, a previous no. guest, an eminent uh, director <clears throat> called Phelan McDermott, he's the <laughs> only guest so far to have named his uh, serious happy place as being a flotation tank. Oh, right. <laughs> so it's about going really deep to float. Anyway, so yeah. I love that. So are you quite sure you don't want to be in the open ocean because it's your clearing metaphorically so you can go where well, you want? Well, if I can magically transport myself there through, um, you know, a greenhouse gas emissions free flight, then yes, let me bob around on the ocean. It could almost be a bit sort of owl and the pussycat. We'll allow you to have your bath in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm going to stick with that, Chris. Yes, I'm having my bath in the middle of the ocean. Why not love have both? I absolutely love that. So that's a wonderful, wonderful clearing. So now, um, I'm gonna, if I may, a bit waiting for Godot-esque and existentially and quite surreal, I'm going to arrive with the tree. I'm going to okay. pop up, not necessarily wearing frog gear, nor should it be scary, but I've arrived next to your bathtub floating in the middle of the ocean. And just oh, to God, give us a, a geographical location, whereabouts in the ocean would you like your bath to be floating? I think let's have the Med, the Mediterranean. I like that, but we're definitely going warm sea, as you're blue, clear sea, bobbing about in your bath. Um, okay, so this tree now is going to shake your tree to see which storytelling apples fall out. How do you like these apples? And this is a lovely, juicy storytelling <coughs> construct called five, four, three, two, one. We've had five minutes to have thought about four things that have shaped you, three things that inspire you, two things that never fail to grab your attention, and that's borrowed from the film up to talk about, oh, squirrels. You know, there's a dog that's constantly distracted by squirrels, as we all are in life, in our hectic lives. And then the one is a quirky, unusual fact about you. We couldn't possibly know about you until you tell us. So you don't, it's not a memory test. I'll curate you through it, but interpret the shaking of the canopy of your tree in your bathtub in the Mediterranean as you see fit. Okay. Um, well, I think I have to start with my family. Um, so my brother was, well, I grew up thinking of him as mentally handicapped, but nowadays we'd say learning disabilities, but, um, he was very uniquely himself, not Down syndrome, but he couldn't really speak properly except for swear words, which came out perfectly. He was, imagine a human being with no inhibitions. Um, so wherever we went, he'd make our friends for us. He'd go up, he'd say hello. The first thing he'd do is establish himself at a bar <laughs> and get the barman to feed him Coca-Colas all day long. And um, But at the same time, he was hugely embarrassing. Um, so, you know, he would hug someone if he didn't like them. He'd tell them to F off. He'd, you know, he would do whatever he wanted at any one time. And I, I adored him. Um, but I think I grew up immune to being embarrassed. <laughs> so, and that's a lot of people say, oh, how can you lecture? How can you do this? How can you do that? And I just think I've stood by while my brothers decided to take a wee in the middle of the street. This isn't going to bother me. And um, so my mother also was half German. And I don't know. I mean, I'm allowed to stereotype. No, my mum was German. I'm allowed to stereotype because I'm half German. So I'm going to claim that right. Yes. But um, like a lot of German people I've met, she was brutally honest. I mean, really brutally honest. And um... there's a lovely through line of bluntness here, as in your brother without <laughs> a filter. If I may just ask before we keep talking about your mother, you mentioned him. I couldn't help hearing in the in the past tense there. Is he still with us? Oh, yes. Well, that leads on to my last. Oh, my, sorry, my sorry. Last so I'll come to that, Chris. So, apologies. No, um, my, my mother also was, was half German, very charming, very blunt, and a little bit outside of her comfort zone in England because she married an Englishman. And then having a son that really restrained, you know, restricted her freedom. And um, so, and my dad was just a maverick. He came from a long line of first sons who'd upset their father and got cut out of the will. So, and then made it afresh himself, thinking, sod you all. Um, so I grew up with a, an absolutely and quite a charismatic but very odd family, all quite uniquely individual. And I think it's made me 
kind of, yeah, not too embarrassed about things. Um, I didn't realise I wasn't too embarrassed about things until I met people who were. Yes. Uh, so my current partner is constantly sort of saying, well, did you notice this? Or, you know, you may have come across that. <laughs> this person was thinking this, and I just think... <laughs> didn't notice, yes. And was your, was your brother diagnosed with Tourette's? Is that where the swearing came no, from? No, no, it wasn't. Um, we're not quite sure what it was. Um, by the way, oh, I, already, I already like I already like the sound of him because he's just monumentally yeah. <laughs> honest and present. Monumentally honest, yeah. He was very uniquely himself, so I'm not quite sure where he, he fit. Yeah. And um, so it was a very individual family. And uh, so it made me feel that I didn't have to necessarily conform to any expectations and just being myself was enough, really. So I think yourself. that... Yeah. That gave me, it wasn't until quite recently I thought about the impact that had had on me because I'm just, a, I'm probably going to be a grandma soon, fingers oh, crossed. Congratulations. <laughs> and I'm just realising that I'm not so worried when I was about to become a parent. I didn't even realise till recently that I was actually quite worried, just in case. And so I sort of kept a bit of myself back until, you know, all was safe. <laughs> And it's so lovely to sort of see my son so look forward to it without that that worry, that fear. And sometimes you don't realise you're scared till till it's gone or you see someone else who isn't. So. And has that through line of directness passed the generation down to your own son as well? Well, well no, he's he's got a very high sense of emotional intelligence and sensitivity to everyone's feelings. He's completely the other way. So maybe to compensate for his mum. <laughs> <laughs> this is lovely shapage so far. So keep yes. going. Um, and I think another one would be, and this refers back, is death. Um, he died in his early 40s, far too young. Um, it was on a very, very hot day. It was a heart attack. Um, I was just about to go on holiday, actually. I was called back from the airport and I was there as he died. I'm so glad I was. And my mum died a couple of years ago. My Dad died a little bit earlier than I would have liked. And a lot of my early friends, I, I've had a lot of death, I think is what I'm saying, Chris. Um, my best friend, I went travelling to India when I came back after university. He was dead in a car crash. And uh, another, my best friend, lost her husband and her daughter. And there's been a lot of people, and I, I can't watch early videos now, save my son's first birthday, because so many people, through various means, um, and this isn't going to be too grim because for a while it, it was very grim and I got paranoid, I think, that people I cared about would die. But then it actually led to me being utterly fearless because anything, I thought, well, is anyone going to die? No. Well, then I'm not bothered. And so I think I've managed to seize the moment, you know, carpe diem. It's really hammered into you when you lose people. You don't sit around. You don't waste time. You yeah. get on with it. And there's no reason to be scared. That's very relatable because of my own love of Stoic philosophy, the, idea <laughs> that, you know, the ancient wisdoms of, of way back when it's not society's yeah. first rodeo and death is a constant, as yeah. is life, until it isn't. So I, I think that's been one of the reasons why I've managed to do a lot of the things that I wouldn't have done because yeah. I just didn't mess around, basically. My dog is battering at the door, wanting to let Can I come and let her in? <laughs> of course you can. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Signs of real life going on in the background. Which, by the way, in the early pandemic, John Lewis were brilliant because they said in the background, people on Zoom. Yeah, that was a lovely life. thing, wasn't it, about yeah. the pandemic? You saw yeah. people's home lives and people stopped pretending they didn't have home lives or children or dogs. <laughs> and your dog is now successfully. And what's your dog's name? Quick mention for your dog. Lily. She's gorgeous. She's Lily, gorgeous. did you say? Yes, Lily, yes. My so she's a... My daughter's oh, called Lily. Sorry. <laughs> it's a cool name, but Lily makes her way into Habitat Man, um, you know, re renamed for her own protection, but as the gorgeous dog in Habitat Man. <laughs> Lovely, and I'm glad she's inside now. That's good. Back to yeah. you. So let's see. We've done my family. Um, we've done death. Um, I think another thing probably affected me uh, was my university days because... Um, I grew up in quite a small village, quite quite narrow-minded, actually. Um, nice people, but I always felt a bit of an outsider, not just because of my old family, but I really cared about the world and I had opinions on things. And um, 
And everyone used to say, oh, you're odd, you ought to meet this other odd person. And they'd be a complete nutter. And I think I shouldn't be odd. I don't think I am odd. I just think this is a very insular environment. Yes. And, um, and the moment I went to university, I met all kinds of people with all kinds of opinions, all kinds of backgrounds, you know, religious people, political people, you know, people passionate about a cause, you know, gay people, all, all kinds. So it was just so nice. And I made such good friends. And because I'd grown up feeling like I didn't quite fit in, or people liked me because I was odd, <laughs> um, to, to actually meet people who didn't think I was odd. It's yeah. made me really value the friendships I have. Probably more some, people there, is, there is such power, as we know, in society in being yeah. an outlier because outliers are the best change makers because they have a super objective perspective because they're not yeah. doing what everybody else is doing. They're thinking differently. So actually being an outlier is more of an agile way of being, I would say. Yeah. I just lights. I like the intellectual stimulation, the ideas, the debates. And um, and I met some people there in a comedy group and we wrote pantos and sketch shows and, and so on. And they were hilarious. They were so funny. Um, so that shaped me for sure. Um, and I mean, we, we had a group of people who took a lot of pride in being mean funny, if you know what I mean. But it yes. was a measure of how accepted you were by how rude they felt they were able to be to you. Yeah. <laughs> so sort of inverse of British politeness. So, no one's ever um, named the genre of that as mean funny, you know, if, if, yes. if it's spiteful or angry. Yeah. I don't think anyone would ever have pushed it if they thought someone was getting really hurt, if they touched a nerve. But, yeah. Um, yes. It was pushing the um, boundaries. That's right. And so that's quite fun. Um, and then I think the next thing that shaped me a lot towards the life I have now was um, a partner of mine, an ex-partner now, but what he, the legacy he left to me was at the time I knew him, he was doing a course in media and he had to write screenplays. And, um, and he'd watch all these films and deconstruct them for me and we wrote screenplays and then we wrote one together called Knickers and I loved it so much. Um, it was actually based on a true story because um, I was a single mother at the time and I was, I was trying to work out how to make ends meet. And I had all these clothes that I used to have when I was working, but I couldn't quite still doing as a mum. And I'd gone back to university. So I thought, well, I'll sell them off. And this chap arrived and um, he wanted my dirty laundry. <laughs> and he was prepared to pay a lot. And I thought, hello. This is a great little cottage industry. I didn't, um, but it did strike me as it was a nice idea for a uh, film. Well, I mean, you know, it's been nicked now by Oranges, Oranges the New Black. They've got that uh -huh. spot in their thing. But um, we wrote it. They didn't nick it. They didn't know about it. But um, they uh, British Screen liked it. We took it to British Screen, and they. they uh, really is there liked a, it. There's a piece of work called Denise Barden's Knickers out there. Is there? <laughs> Not publicly available, but it's, it's on my laptop. Um, but yeah, no, sorry, just, just to go to the dark side, just sorry, somebody turned yeah. up wanting not just your knickers, but all the dirty washing. Well, no, I mean, I said that just to spare the blushes of your viewers. They, they wanted my dirty pants, yes. Um, um, yes. That's the first <laughs> time we brought that straight away. It's, I was yes. showing them dresses and suits, they were completely uninterested. And it's this big bloke, and I was like, well, I'm broad minded, all right. Um, but then it turned out, you know, he had quite specific interests. I don't know. Maybe I'd accidentally put some term in my ad that sort of had a double meaning. Your, your, your brother should have been around to sort of give him short shrift and show you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> give him a hug. Tell him to have a hug. <laughs> yeah, he would have. He would yes. have. Um, so that was my first sort of taste of writing, actually, writing that up. And we did get, we would have got success, but then there was government cutbacks, British Screen lost their funding, and I decided to throw myself into academic writing, which yeah. paid. So proper yes. job. Um, but I've returned to writing now. And, um, <clears throat> but I think it was, it, was, um, it was my ex-partner there who sort of got me on the road. And he's still with us by the sound of it. I know there was a lot of death. Hey, yes. of it. it wasn't like you've, yes, you've, Actually, him off. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Important to clarify that. Thank you. It's official. Uh, I think now we're on to three things that inspire you. And thank you for those delicious shapages. Um, well, actually, I was going to talk about Habitat Man, but I've mentioned him. So what I will do 
is mentioned Dave Goulson. Now, he's a professor of biology at Sussex University. Uh, he set up the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, and he's written loads of lovely books, such as The Garden Jungle, How to Save the Planet Through Gardening. And he's got this lovely manner and the lovely way that my own green garden consultant had of seeing the world through insects' eyes and opening your eyes to a whole different way of viewing it. So rather than say, you know, pesticides, you know, kill every pest, you know, he says, well, so what if they have a nibble? They're part of the ecosystem. Absolutely, yeah. You know, a plant that is meant to be in that environment will survive that fine. And, um, and he really gets over the fact that when you use pesticides, you're killing uh, the predators of the pests as well. And the pests will reproduce faster than the predators. So actually, you're creating a problem for yourself. Yes. And, um, and he was kind enough to read Habitat Man. And he went through every bit of it, checking the ecological information. He suggested the odd, very lyrical passage himself. And um, so while the original Green Garden consultant, his name shall remain anonymous, gave me the idea, I think it was Dave Goulson giving me the confidence that actually the idea worked that he, someone I admire hugely, thought it was really good and really yeah. enjoyed reading it. So um, and this, you know, I, I don't think I would have written it without that sort of approbation, that sort of confidence boosting. And I love the expression, looking at the world through insects' eyes. So presumably yeah. compound eyes gives you a sort of multifaceted <laughs> way of looking at the world. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and a I honey, A honeycomb of perspectives almost, yeah. Yes, yeah. And I... One of the things that I think people have said from reading it is they too have learned to see it in that way. It's just a different perspective. Um, so, With regard to what people can actually do to help mm -hmm. save the environment, there was a, something rather humorous pointed recently where someone said, I'm, I'm making my own small contribution by rewilding my sitting room. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse to never do any dusting or hoovering ever again. So well, my garden's pretty wild. Yeah, I've definitely <laughs> rewilded that. And uh, it's the low time option. So, um, but yeah, that, that was good. So I was very, very pleased about that. Um, another inspiration would be um, another writer, actually, uh, James Graham. Now, I don't know if you've come across him. He wrote Sherwood, which was a BBC series yeah. where it was set in a, a miners' village um, and there's a murder and he alternates between the 80s miners' strike and today and the divisions between the, the miners and the, and the scabs, you know. And he's done a number of works like that. He did one on Brexit, I think it's called An Uncivil War. Uh, he, he, I just saw a play of his, Dear England, about um, Gareth, oh, Southgate. Yeah. Um, oh, yes, 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 yes. Yes, letter to the, the country, Dear England. And, and the constant theme in his work is taking divisions in society and showing you perspective from different perspectives so once you've watched it you go away feeling uplifted and just kinder yes lovely and i mean he would be great to have on the show but you'd be it'll be a coup to get him but he's got a lovely story because he apparently grew up in a mining village one parent was you know very left wing and a minor another parent was very right wing and they got divorced and, and the dad moved next door and I just picture this little boy trying desperately to sort of stop the arguments and bring them together and he's doing that now with with his fiction yeah lovely and, and, and have, you met, have you met him or you oh, just... I'd love to because he's yeah. he's the writer I admire the most and just say his name once again I know I've got Sherwood in my head but it's David uh, James Graham James Graham Everything he's done has been brilliant. Uh, a lot of plays, a lot of screenplays. Um, really nice, unassuming chap as well. I saw him in an interview. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do, I guess, is um, look at the issues in the world. And for me, a lot of it's about climate and loss of nature and biodiversity. Yes. And thinking, how can I write the solutions into a story and leave readers feeling happy, not scared, yeah. and empowered and entertained and educated that's um, such a so lovely... he inspired me for that i think and and for both of our what i'll do for both of us i'll, I'll try i'll send him this link yeah. this clip of you talking about him and how much you admire him and i hope you get to meet him and i hope i get to interview him he sounds wonderful um third inspiration right so my third inspiration would be 
the Cuban people. So um, I taught for a long time business ethics. And one of the things that worried me a lot of the time is how easy is it actually for a business to be genuinely ethical or sustainable within a competitive free market economy? Because if you're the only one paying decent wages and others in your sector are paying sweatshop wages and you are responsible to the shareholders, how much freedom of movement do you really have? Um, and also we need to be consuming yet uh, less to live within our, our planetary means. But um, businesses make money from selling more and persuading us to, to buy more, more than we need, really. So I thought... I'd love to see a country which has a completely different system and see how that works. So I went to Cuba and I'd done some research in, in the England, talked to people about whether social responsibility or ethics or sustainability conflicted with profit. And I got you know lots of really good, good interviews. When I went to Cuba and I was speaking to social enterprises, so then it's mostly social enterprises or businesses that have partnered with the, the government. Yeah. Um, and they didn't understand the question. And that was so interesting. They said, well, we, we, are, we are an enterprise to serve our society. Why, why would we do anything? And what's the question? I, I, I heard um, you. Yeah, are there any tensions between being socially responsible or sustainable and society or, or ethics um, or, or profit? So are the tensions between profit and society, really? And they, they didn't really understand the question. And I went to one organic um, gardening company, they, an organic farm. They have to be organic because of the um, embargo, which means they can't get access to any chemicals. But they said now they're very glad they're organic because actually it's better. And I asked them how they price their products. And they said, well, you know, I said, does the government specify the price? And they said, there's a price you can't go above. Um, but within that, it's just supply and demand. So I said, well, does supply exceed demand or demand exceeds supply? They said, no, demand exceeds supply. And I said, so is the price at the highest level? No. No, we already earn twice as much as the most in the community earn. Why would we price it higher? Uh, so so there's, a, them, there's an absence of... differential of two <laughs> was as much as they felt they could stomach in terms of their notions of what was fair and just... And I was just going to say there's a societal absence of greed, which is the big difference. Yes. And it's yeah. um, the, the since the Cuban, I mean, there was a Cuban revolution at the end of the 50s led by Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. And many of the older people said to me, we would not be here because of the corruption and the ill health and lack of education. From that, I had an education. I have access to health. Um, I went there a second time with a colleague of mine who works in public health because she was interested to see why they were probably more innovative in their drugs and treatments than we were in the west despite being really poor and it's because their metric of success is health not profit and it's actually not that profitable <laughs> to invest money in drugs that are difficult to manufacture it's much easier to make versions of drugs we already have that are maybe marginally different so um I found it very hard to publish because there's this idea that anything in Cuba is bad because it's not a democracy. I was going to ask um, if you'd published the paper because it sounds like the Cuban way. I know you probably thought of your own title, yeah. but the Cuban <clears throat> way is, is a gift to us all, I would say, if it's all about a lack mm. of greed. No, I couldn't get it published. And it turned out that's a Cuban curse. So for the first time ever, I had reviewers like it, but the editor overruled it. And I've never had that. Wow. And the, the other one was saying, <clears throat> no, because Fidel Castro is a brutal dictator who ruined the lives of his people. And it's like, well, A, we hadn't mentioned him in the paper. <laughs> yeah. And B, that wasn't the impression I was getting from the Cuban people. And, you know, they weren't this oppressed, you know, brainwashed group I'd been led to, to believe. And I learned a lot about uh, their, their international solidarity so anytime there's any sort of medical emergency, the Cuban doctors will go out there. So we missed a load because they're all off treating Ebola. So for a country that's so poor to be so generous yes. with, its, with its medical aid, and it just seemed that spirit of solidarity and fortitude um, was so inspiring. And my sons, I had my son at the time, 
I took them with me on the second trip and they were old enough then to wander around by themselves. And he took his guitar and him and his younger brother would walk up and down the, the Havana Boulevard by the sea. And he said they were followed by, by Cuban sort of young people and he gave everything away and they'd show him places and then demand money. And he was beginning to get a little bit cynical. And on the last day, um, the same thing was happening. He said, I'm sorry, I would love to have a drink and buy you a drink, but I'm broke. Um, and they said, oh, come on, we'll take you for a drink. And he was blown away by that. And he didn't really understand that in Cuba, the one who has the money pays. It's just the norm. Right, yes. <laughs> it does make complete sense. And with the socio-political resistance you being able to publish because of what yeah. we talked about at the beginning, now we can publish anyway. So I hope you've published something in any case. <laughs> Um, well, I have found it quite hard to, to publish, but um, I did do a musical called Fidel, um, where I um, I was for a while an impresario, which is such a grand title, but I did it as a competition where school kids wrote songs for a, a musical about Fidel, because it's on the curriculum. The, um, yeah. So, and then we put it on in Southampton, we put it on in London, and I'd have loved to take it further because it was such a lovely project. But it's so, musicals are so expensive and time consuming. And, you know, I'm, I had a full-time job. And so um, there's only so far I could go down that line. You're very talented because even if I thought, oh, I'll write a musical, I just know I couldn't. <laughs> well, I didn't write the music. I wrote the story. <laughs> I'm no talent with music. No, it was fun. Good fun. But I'm, so I'm it's, glad it's Yes, and I'm glad it has a, has an outlet and had an oh. outlet. Lovely to get uh, children involved because that's where yeah. you know the children are the future and lardy blah as we know. <laughs> Beautiful stuff. Now, two uh, squirrels. Now, what are your squirrels of distraction? What squirrels never fails to grab your attention? I'm assuming it may be cli climate related, but we can find out. So, what are your squirrels or monsters of distraction? Uh, no, they're not climate related at all. Actually, uh, alleyways. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so my, my partner gets mad with me. Anytime I go anywhere, if I see a little alleyway heading off, I have to go down it. Um, I just find them intriguing. So, you know, sometimes you end up in a sort of nowhere quite often. Somewhere you end up somewhere that looks a bit dodgy. But sometimes you find a little cut through to somewhere lovely that you never would have seen. So it's the mystery of alleyways. Is I love story. that. <laughs> and where one prefers to go, have you heard it called Desire Lines before? No, I haven't. So in a park, no, when, the, the, when the municipal powers that be yeah. say this is the path, you'll invariably see lots of trails off to the grass somewhere yeah. else. And those are <laughs> Desire Lines. Uh, and so I, your own private Desire Lines are at the byways and alleyways of Denise Barton. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lovely squirrel. Um, and another squirrel is is music, I think. If ever I hear a bar of music wherever I'm like a pass a doorway, um, I'm transfixed. And there's a couple of examples. The one when I grew up in my little village, I was so bored as a teenager. I used to pace up and down, thinking, I'm so bored, where is life? And I just walk around the village. And if ever I heard music coming from a house or even a party, I'd be like, you know, the, the kid at the shop window. <laughs> You're the world's best gate crasher. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and when I travelled around, around India after university, um, at the time, all they had was this high-pitched singing by Lata Mangeshkar, sort of Bollywood film music. Everywhere you went, it was Bollywood film music. And, um, and I remember one time we'd, we'd gone on this big train right to the middle of nowhere, and there were these some girls on the train and they offered to sing us some Hindi folk songs. So they did. And it wasn't hot, you know, Bollywood music. It was all about how they didn't want to be loved just for their, their dowries. And then they asked us to sing a song. And, and I realised the dearth of our musical culture because I could not think of one song that I knew all the words to. But they were very insistent. So in the end, we, we, there was only one song we both knew the words to. And you will never guess what it is. Uh, 
Do you want, I'll, 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 sorry, Mike, the comedian in me is going Nelly the Infant, which would be deeply unsatisfying. No, no. It's worse than that. It was Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Mama. Ooh. God, so you went for a bit long one, then. That's a bit of a... I mean, we did the whole thing. The whole train clustered into our carriage and we were doing the head banging. It was, it was oh, very... Oh, I commend beautiful. you for that. So singing Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> as a payback for Please Don't Love Us Just For Our Dowries. <laughs> but then we... Um, so walking along the, the streets of, of some city and I heard Pink Floyd, Wish You Were Here, come from this basement. And it was the first proper Western music I'd heard. I'd been there three months and it wasn't, you know, it was like guitar. And I'd, I'd, I'd want to do a riff now, but I'll, I'll spare you. But um, it was just home. And that was the moment I got homesick and I had to go in that bar. And uh, my partner's saying, I don't think it's okay to go in that bar. It looks dodgy, and it's but it's cooling to me. <laughs> As are the alleyways. And I have to ask you, what's your favourite alleyway that you've stumbled down? Oh, um, oh gosh, I think it was probably it was probably one in Cuba actually, where I ended up at a side of bar where we actually concocted the plan for Fidel the musical. <laughs> I'm glad I asked that question. That question was meant to be. It was. It was similar to me. And now, yes. oh, sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, so Pink Floyd, we ended up in this bar where I was the only, I was only a girl at the time. I was like this sort of 20 year old girl in a den full of like, you know, middle aged. <laughs> I got some looks, but I sat and enjoyed the music. <laughs> and now uh, the final uh, number one is now a quirky or unusual fact about you, Denise, that we couldn't possibly know about you until you tell us. Uh, well, it won't surprise you. I get lost a lot. <laughs> <laughs> because you're just always interested in the in the alleyways and byways of Denise Barden. I yes. love that. If you, if you go on a walk with me, you will get lost. So that's um, someone, only someone who knows me would know that about me. So is that because you're not blessed with a great GPS instinct? I think I am. Um, but it's probably all following these alleyways and byways. I, yes. I, I will go off on paths if I see them. And with a trail of breadcrumbs, you'll always find your way back, I'm sure, which is lovely. <laughs> ah, so we've shaken your tree. Hurrah. Next, we stay in the clearing, move away from the tree. And now we're talking about alchemy and gold. When you're at purpose and in flow, here's a bar of gold for you. Uh, what are you absolutely happiest doing in what you're here to reveal to the world? Uh, playing God with my characters. So I feel so helpless to do so much about the world. Um, but with my characters, they, they, they come alive for me. And when you've got a plot point and you think, well, how can I manage this without that? Or how can I get this over without being clunky or boring? Or how can I reveal this backstory in a way that's really fun? Um, when you hit upon the solution, um, there's this moment of joy where it all comes together. And quite often, dog walkers locally will see me cackling to myself. <laughs> I remember the Habitat Man, I was trying to think, how do I reveal his backstory? And I had him daydreaming about being a mastermind contestant where he has to answer questions and the questions get more and more personal. You know, <laughs> how, why have you ended up in this position? And it was a lovely way because I, you know, it's the kind of thing people dream about. And it was such a fun way to reveal backstory. And immediately the massively clunky chapter I'd written that tried to do the same thing, I'd managed to do it in one fun scene. And I was just so happy. You know, there's no thrill like it when you know you, you've done good. <clears throat> That's a yeah. lovely answer to the alchemy in gold. And now I'm going to award you with a cake. And this is yeah. uh, fine. So do you like cake, Denise? Because I like cake so much that I once led the happy birthday chant at a party where I didn't know the host just to get my hands on the birthday cake. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, hot off the press, I've got a new series strand coming up, which is about the big birthday show. So anyone with right. a big birthday coming up. So that, that's lovely that you love cake and it's about birthday cake as well, which is like <laughs> an accident. So um, well, the birthday cake is yours and we'll put a bit of a cherry on the cake now with stuff like what's a favourite inspirational quote that's always given you sucker and pulled you towards your future? Um, OK, I think one is a friend of mine said, uh, if you want to be miserable, think about yourself. And it's, it's a bit of a Buddhist philosophy as well. And I like it because it works. Um, 
not because I'm a specially moral person. <laughs> it actually works. And, and whenever I kind of get sunk in gloom or anything like that, I, I say that to myself and I look outwards and immediately I'm engaged in the world again and with other people around me and I'm happier. So, it is a very, very clever construct, I have to say, because yeah. it sounds like it's totally intro introspective and a bit doomy, yeah. but actually it's inviting you to do the exact yin-yang yeah. opposite. So just say the quote one more time. If you want to be miserable, think about yourself. Yes, I love that. I invoke you to not be so flipping selfish. Yeah. It's not all about us. It's all about the rest of the world. The yeah. fact we are participants within it. Love that. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, um, okay, yeah. This was someone um, that I met at university. Really nice chap. I never quite got to know him, but I remember this one time we just sat on a wall, uh, I don't know, waiting for the same bus or something, and I confided in him my sense of being responsible for the world's ills and being worried about the world and feeling so powerless to make a difference. And... He said, I think about it as throwing um, a pebble in a pond, the ripples. You are the pebble. All you can do is control your ripples. So you can create ripples by what you buy, by how you vote, by what you put out in the world, by how you treat people. Um, and you're responsible for that. And that was doable. I, I can manage my own ripples. Not always. <laughs> But, you know, it's something I feel I've got control over. And I that whenever I feel helpless in the face of everything, I just think, well, as long as my ripples are all right, that's all I can do. And the man on the wall, do you remember his name? Uh, Martin. Martin. The boy on the wall, sorry. The boy on yes, the wall. I um, can't remember his surname, but he was a Martin. <laughs> <clears throat> so lovely, is it, when someone yeah. says something that you'll never forget, and that was that yeah. moment waiting for that bus. How old do you think you were when you had given that advice? I was probably my mid-twenties maybe something like that because I'd, I'd met up with him accidentally after university we just bumped into each other and so, did you yeah. tell him that you remember the thing the conversation on the wall no I never saw him again <laughs> some people appear in the moment as spontaneous yes. angels to us don't they that's um, right with the beautiful gift of hindsight now um what notes help or advice might you offer or proffer to a younger version of Denise I would say know your level of competence. So when I was young, I was so convinced I knew everything, so convinced I knew better than everyone else. And I look back now and I shudder at how oblivious I was to so much. I'm sure a lot of us feel that way. And um, I really should have been more humble. Um, there is that adage, isn't there? Children, <laughs> children of a particular age should leave home now whilst they know everything. <laughs> quickly I dismissed all the very wise advice my mum and dad gave me oh I was awful um and now I think about 10 years ago I realized the opposite I should know my competence and it was at a gig I was doing so another thing I do is I've got a project on sustainable hairdressing um and I was doing a sustainable hairdressing event in Malta and the person was trying to tell me how to run the event and and I know what works and I was, well, I think probably this or perhaps that. And they ignored me and it didn't really work out and not enough people came. And uh, a friend who'd accompanied me said, Denise, you know your stuff. If they'd have listened to you, we'd have got a full turnout. You know, you should be more confident. You know, you're, you're the expert. And it's like, oh gosh, am I? <laughs> and I realized that I should stop giving way uh, to people who are less competent than me to actually realise where my area of expertise is and where it isn't and um, and stand up for myself when I think I know more than the person in front of me. So it's just about getting it right. You know, sometimes yeah. you overshoot, sometimes you undershoot. But um, that was a bit of a turning point for me where I felt, no, I think I can speak more confidently on this now. Or at least I don't know everything. I know, I know what I don't know and I don't think they know it either. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. The idea of knowing, knowing your level of competence isn't a yeah. humility piece necessarily, because sometimes you know you know more than the person standing next yeah. to you, and that's the time to be discerning yeah. about the battle in life that's worth fighting. Exactly, yeah. Just tell me a bit more about what a sustainable hairdressing event is, because it's quite an intriguing hook. Well, 
Again, the same reason I went into fiction was the same reason I went into sustainable hairdressing, because actually washing hair can be quite a high impact activity because hot water is very energy intensive. So <clears throat> I was very interested because hairdressers talk to more people than probably any other profession about an activity that can be quite high resource. So um, a hairdressing event is really engaging hairdressers in, you know, you don't need to shampoo, rinse and repeat unless in rare occasions. Uh, you can use low flow shower heads. You can advise your clients about things like leave-in conditioner or dry shampoo, both of which are great for fine flyaway hair. So just in practices that enable you to have great hair, but with less time, less money, less energy, less water, less impact on the planet. Thank you. And now we're ramping up to a bit of Shakespeare, but just before we get there, this is the pass the golden baton moment, please. So now you've experienced this from within. Who, Denise, would you most like to pass the golden baton along to to keep the golden thread of the storytelling going? Oh, I don't know. Can I pick two? Yes. <laughs> no extra charge, you're welcome. I love that. Okay, well, one chap is Steve Willis, and uh, he's, he's a wonderfully individual and lovely chap. He's a chemical engineer stroke climate fiction writer. And like me, he feels that he knows a lot of the solutions out there. He wants to get them out there. So he does this lucid dreaming and he wakes up in the middle of the night and he writes it all down. And he's entered a few of my green story competitions saying, Denise, this is brilliant. <laughs> you know, publish this. Um, actually, he's, you know, he's writing, sorry, Steve, has a particular style that perhaps isn't mainstream. Um, but what we did do is we came up with this idea of teaming climate experts like himself with experienced writers to create stories and books that, you know, were both entertaining, brilliantly written, would engage readers and also had climate solutions. So we did one called No More Fairy Tales, Stories to Save Our Planet. Yeah. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, who's very well known in that field, contributed to some chapters. Um, and I went to COP28 with him and he showed me the, the world through engineers' eyes, which again was very interesting, just like it's interesting seeing it through animals' eyes. You know, and I understood how all the air conditioning was working and which projects people were talking about were likely to work and which clearly wouldn't, <laughs> or would, you know, solve one problem by creating another. And he's just, um, he's worked with another author, Jan Lee, and they've got a new book coming out now, Fairhaven, coming out uh, in a week's time. So, which is, I think, the best of both worlds. It's got his climate expertise, her writing ability. It's so such a lovely, it's such a lovely testament to the nature of true collaboration, by the way, yeah. because you don't need to know all the answers. You might need to know the golden nugget that needs to be part of the equation of the answer, but then you partner with others who can help you bring that to fruition. That's the joy of proper teamwork to make the dream work, I think, through the art and of collaboration. And his passion really comes through it. So um, I love that mixture of a, an engineer who is at heart a storyteller. Lovely. So that was Stephen Willis, you said, didn't you? Yeah, Steve Willis. Steve yeah. Willis. And baton pass number two, please, bring your offering to. Um, well, I want to give a, a little shout out to Jack Claff. So he's an actor. He's been in all kinds of things. He's been uh, in one of the early Star Wars. He was in Poirot. He was in one of the Sherlock Holmes ones, um, the English. And he's a South African actor and he's a proper actor, darling. And, um, and he's a friend of yours, is he? Well, coming a friend, I kind of know him indirectly. Paul, who does Jackson, who you had on your show, introduced me to Martin Buckley, who's a film editor and journalist who's good mates with Jack Claff. And he heard about a, a theatre project I was doing, Murder in the Citizen's Jury, where we tried to engage the audience in climate solutions. So it's about um, eight people in a citizen's assembly debating climate solutions, and then there's a murder. And then the director of public prosecutions has to decide, you know, whether to prosecute. And um, we kind of engage the audience in that. And I've got a sort of dramatic one monologue version. And Jack Claff is doing it um, in April, 20th of April. So I'll, I'll give you the link to that. But it's on our Green Stories webpage. I have a and delicious then, punchline for you. He Dom, has, in the early days of the podcast, he was one of my first guests because of my yeah. connection to the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. And Jack Claff and 
it was a wonderful episode and this will be the perfect reason to go back and bring him for a second pass through the clearing which some guests have done and well, I mentioned he'd really be entertaining for you. He's got a wonderful voice oh, and he's, he's done lovely. so much other than acting as well. So. so Jack, I'm coming for you again and it's going to be wonderful <laughs> because this, this programme has so moved on tremendously since his first appearance. He was fascinating and he's a brilliant man. So I'm, I'm thrilled and delighted and that's given me a, a wonderful reason to go back to him. Thank you so much, Denise. And now, inspired by Shakespeare... And all the world's stage and all the barely players. This is borrowed from Jaquees and As You Like It to talk about legacy and the seven ages of man stroke woman. So uh, when all is said and done, how, Denise, uh, would you most like to be remembered? Well, I got stuck on this because legacy, I guess, I think would be my books. And um, so, for example, I know Habitat Man inspired quite a few people to do natural burials because I have a, a natural burial scene. And that's a lovely legacy already. It's already made it worthwhile because um, I wrote that when my mum was dying and we had a natural burial. And it was all a willow coffin and plant a tree and, you know, no chemicals in there. And I, I think that the fact that that went into my writing and other people picked up on that and emailed me saying they'd done that too. Really, I don't feel my heart with joy really and help redeem all, all, the, all the, the sorrow that I think went into that. But also in terms of remembered, I only really mind if I remember how I'm remembered by the people who know me personally. And I know from my own experiences of death, how people die, where you were with them at the before they died you know are there any loose ends that you wish you'd said or were there not that's what enables you to think about them either with a smile on your face or a sense of real ache and I would just want everyone to remember me with a smile on my face with a smile on their face so lovely <laughs> where can we find out all about you and your wonderful work as professor of sustainability at Southampton University Denise Denise Barton Okay, so my website is dabaden.com. And I'm so sorry, by the way, I've, I've had that 50-50 chance of Baden-Baden all the way through in my head and I've been, <laughs> I hope I'm getting it right. So it's Baden, is that right? It is Baden, yes. I'm so uh, sorry, Baden, Baden, Baden-Baden, and it's definitely Baden, forgive me. <laughs> and my, my big project, I guess, is the greenstories.org.uk. All the projects are there and the events and the publications and the play. So it's all on that as well. Um, and we do writing competitions as well. So that's a good place to find out what's going on. Lovely. So Denise Baden, as this has been your moment, your moment of in the sunshine of the good listening to show, is there anything else you'd like to say? Um, no, other than thank you for giving me a jolly good listening to. It's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> My absolute pleasure. You've been an absolute delight. And thank you for those wonderful golden baton passes too. Um, so thank you for watching also on LinkedIn. This has been Denise Baden from Southampton University. And if you'd like to be in the show too, then have a look at the website at thegoodlistening2show.com. And there are many serious strands which will make it really clear how you go about doing that. Also, apart from being a LinkedIn Live, we pull it into the UK Health Radio Show version, and that will give you an audience reach across 54 countries of about 1.3 million and growing. Hurrah! So very much looking forward to bringing you into that space too. Thank you so much for being here, Denise. Um, anything else you'd like to say now? No, I'm done. Thank you. And drop the mic. Good night. You've been listening to The Good Listening To Show here on UK Health Radio with me, Chris Grimes. Oh, it's my son. If you've enjoyed the show, then please do tune in next week to listen to more stories from The Clearing. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, then please do so. There's also a dedicated Facebook group for the show too. You can contact me about the programme, or if you'd be interested in experiencing some personal impact coaching with me, care of my Level Up Your Impact programme, that's chris at secondcurve.uk. On Twitter and Instagram, it's at that Chris Grimes. So until next time, from me, Chris Grimes, from UK Health Radio, and from Stan, to your good health, and goodbye. So, uh, Denise Baden, I'm so sorry about get, saying Baden, 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 Baden all the way through because I'd, I'd got myself stuck in that cleft stick of whether I'm getting it. I had a 50-50 chance and I kept cocking it up. So, as you've just been given a good listening to, could I just get your immediate feedback on what it felt like to be in this structure of this show? I'm just interested in what guests think. 
Um, I really, well, it's enjoyable and it does make you really think actually about what's important to you and what made you and what mattered. Um, and it made me think about, you know, Martin, who I hadn't seen for, I don't know, 25 odd years and wondering how he's doing. So it's this nice sense that it's sort of, you know, you get a sense of where you've come from, which we probably don't think about that often. So I've enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope you can seek him out and work out where he is, because I think it is worth remembering that. I mean, what's so oh, lovely about <laughs> ah, Martin, the, the boy on the wall. I, I heard it. I know you were in your mid 20s when you were first describing it. I imagined a 14 or 15 year old version of you sitting on a wall. Um, yeah. Two wonderful people sitting on a wall, the man, the boy and the girl. On the wall. <laughs> uh, but he's yes. So if Martin's out there listening, get in touch with me because I think that's a lovely conversation to finish uh, and have together. <laughs> Closure right there. Thank you so much. That was a real delight. Thank you.